Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So happy Hanukkah to one and all. On Hanukkah, we celebrate one of the many Jewish holidays that deal with tensions between Gentiles and Jews. According to the old saying, it's one of the many Jewish holidays that all have the same theme. They tried to kill us. They didn't succeed. Let's eat. It's an appropriate time, perhaps, to be thinking about the issue of anti-Semitism. My lecture tonight, though, will only be about one small aspect of the issue of anti-Semitism, an issue about which many lengthy books have been written. Let me explain the background to my own study of this question. A little more than two years ago, I was invited to be part of a project of academics studying the issue of anti-Semitism. I was surprised that I was invited to be part of this group because everybody else in the group was a modernist dealing with the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, and I, I usually deal with older issues within Judaism. Uh, as a Jew, I've always been interested in the issue, but I had never actually studied the specific question that the team assigned to me to investigate. My task was to examine what did pre-modern Jewish religious texts say about anti-Semitism. In other words, I was asked not to look so much at what was actually going on, but on what Jews understood and felt about what was going on. And so I set out to study this, and tonight I'll report to you on what I found. I'll just preface by saying one thing. I was surprised by what I found in pre-modern Jewish texts, and as the evening unfolds, I'll try to explain to you why and how I was surprised. Perhaps somebody might ask, why is it important to know what pre-modern Jews thought about anti-Semitism? A fair question. But as we all know, many Jews, particularly religious Jews, but also others, allow their attitudes to modern issues to be informed by what pre-modern Jewish thinkers taught to us. And the first text that we will look at tonight demonstrates this modern reliance on past teachings. You have all the texts here in Hebrew and English. I will read them only in English. Anybody who wishes to follow along the Hebrew and has the ability, uh, feel free to do so. The first text here was written in 1971. This is an answer given by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was considered perhaps the leading Orthodox rabbi of the United States of the 20th century. People from all over the United States and actually from all over the world turned to him with questions of Jewish law, for que questions of guidance, and he, has, he composed many volumes of answers to such questions. Here is an answer that he wrote in 1971 to a question that he received from a rabbi who lived in England. The, you don't have the question in front of you. I'll tell you what the question was. 
the rabbi in England said, we're upset here in England because Jewish schools get less funding from the government than other private schools. Now, here in the United States, uh, we all know that uh, there, there is no funding for, uh, for religious uh, day schools. But in many countries of the world, including England, there was some government funding. Uh, and there is still some government funding. And in Canada, uh, in, in different parts of Canada, there are different kinds of formulae for this. But there is some government support for Jewish day schools in many countries of the world, uh, of, of the Western world. And the Jewish community figured out that they were actually getting less money than other religious schools. And they were upset about this. And they tried to lobby the British government, and they were unsuccessful. And then they decided there was an initiative to sue the British government in the European Court of Human Rights and to claim that this was an infraction of human rights because other religious groups were getting more than the Jews were getting. And a rabbi in England didn't know whether this was a good idea, so he turned to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, living in New York, for him to give a religious ruling about whether it was a good idea to be suing the government of England in the European Court of Human Rights. And so here's Rabbi Feinstein's answer. Certainly, it is obvious that one should lobby the government to support schools established by Jews for themselves. Of course, this is a statement that here in the United States, many people would disagree with. Many people would say that the separation between church and state is very important to be preserved. But from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's perspective, it's obvious that if Jews can get support from the government for Jewish education, that that's, a, that's a good thing. So that would be fine. So the fact that you've been lobbying the government so far, that's good. But the, your initiative to pursue a, uh, a suit in the European Court of Human Rights, which wasn't, in, I think, in 1971, if I remember correctly. I looked into this. I think it was in Belgium, the European Court of, uh, of Human Rights. And so Rabbi Feinstein writes, but we must worry that suing the government at a court in another country with which England is associated and complaining to the judges there that the ministers in England are harming the Jews is likely to cause hatred toward Jews on the part of the government. If Jews stand up for their rights and they say the Catholics are getting more money than we're getting and you do this publicly, this is going to lead to anti-Semitism. The result could be far worse than the original problem. For we have to realize that hatred of the Jews by all nations is actually great, even in the nations that behave well toward Jews. Anti-Semitism, Rabbi Feinstein says, is always just under the surface. And if we do anything that might stir it up, we're working against our best interests. And for the attempt of getting some more money for the Jewish day schools, uh, it's not worth it to take the chance because the result is going to be an increase in anti-Semitism. Now, you might think that this is like political advice being given, but it's framed here in terms of religious advice. And here's his, uh, his religious explanation of, 
why he is convinced that this is the correct thing to do. I've already explained concerning Rashi's language in his Torah commentary. Rashi, the most famous Jewish Bible commentator uh, in the 11th century, his commentary on the word Vayishakehu, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says that it is a well-known halacha that Esau hates Jacob. Esau and Jacob were brothers in the book of Genesis, and they are sometimes seen typologically with Jacob representing the Jewish people and Esau representing non-Jews. And so Rabbi Feinstein quotes Rashi, quoting Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who says, it is a well-known halacha that Esau hates Jacob. The word halacha means Jewish law. That's a very difficult thing. It is a, it's like it's a Jewish law that, what does that mean, that, that, that saying? And why is the word halacha relevant here, says Rabbi Feinstein? It is because just as halacha never changes, so also Esau's hatred of Jacob never changes. Even in those nations that behave well toward Jews, their hatred of Jews is actually strong. So it is a halacha. It's an established principle. It's something that never is going to change, never has changed, and never will change. Then even if when you're living in a country where it seems that the Jews are being treated, uh, treated properly, Anti-Semitism is there under the surface, and the Jews have to be extremely careful not to stir it up. Rabbi Feinstein came from Eastern Europe uh, to, to, the, uh, to the United States, and certainly uh, in the Eastern Europe of the beginning of the 20th century, anti-Semitism was, uh, uh, at best, just below the surface, and very often it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't below the surface. But Rabbi Feinstein had already been living many years in the United States of America, and he was writing that even in the countries where it seems that the Jews are being treated well, and, and, and he, he cites a source, and if, if we had time, if, we'd be, if we had a course about this, I could show you dozens of texts from the 20th and the 21st century who quote this same line of Rashi in order to prove that Judaism teaches that anti-Semitism is uh, universal and inevitable, and it's never going to go away. So let's look a little bit at this, uh, at this teaching. So the story of Jacob and Esau appears in the Bible. Uh, many of you will remember the details of the story. We read them not too many weeks ago in our synagogues. Uh, Esau and Jacob were twins. Esau was the older brother. Jacob did various things to, uh, to get the birthright from his older brother, including some trickery. And after he tricked his father into giving him, uh, into giving him the blessing, the Bible says here in text number two that uh, Jacob's mother says to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. Now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to Haran, to my brother Lavan. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will fetch you from there. Okay, so that's the background to the story of Esau and Jacob. Jacob usurped or got the birthright from, uh, from Esau. Esau is angry. Jacob has to run away. Some 22 years later, Jacob comes back to the land of Israel, and 
he was promised by God that it was okay to come back to the land of Israel. And yet, he was worried. And so he sent some messengers to find out, to tell Esau that he was on his way back to the land. And then we see here, and in verse 7, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, he himself is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly frightened. In his anxiety, he divided the people with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. And then I skip uh, a number of sentences. Jacob is very worried about this meeting that is coming up. He thinks that, uh, that Esau is still coming to kill him. He tries, according to Jewish tradition, he tried three different ways of, uh, of dealing with this. He prayed to God. Uh, he sent a bribe to Esau. He sent a whole bunch of presents that arrived to, to Esau. And then... Uh, and he also divided up his camp, thinking that if Esau came and killed uh, half of his group, at least the other half would, uh, would survive. The commentators on the Bible uh, discussed the question about whether actually these fears were well-founded. I remember that you know, when I was a kid and I learned these, uh, these stories, the... Uh, the it was always explained that the fear was well-founded and that Esau was, going to, was negatively inclined towards Jacob still 22 years later. But that's not necessarily the case. And we see that when they actually do meet each other, at the, the bottom of page one here, it says, Esau ran to greet him. He embraced him, and falling on his neck, he kissed him, and they wept. So there are two possibilities. It could be that Jacob had misunderstood, the, uh, had misunderstood what Esau said. It's true that 22 years before that, Esau had said, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to kill my brother. But uh, sadly, all of us uh, who have been parents or who have been siblings uh, can recall that sometimes a sibling will say, I'm going to kill my brother. Uh, and, and so... It, it's not necessar necessarily the case that Esau was negatively, or perhaps Jacob's strategies worked to, uh, to change Esau's mind and to get Esau to, uh, to be more positively inclined to him. Those of you who can look at the Hebrew, look at the bottom of page one. There is a word in the Hebrew in the bottom of page one, the word vayishakehu, the word that means he kissed him, has dots on top of each one of the letters. This is very unusual, and if you open up a Torah scroll, you will see that th this happens about ten times in the Torah, that there are dots written on top of a word. And... What is the significance of... So modern scholars who talk about the significance of these, uh, these dots have uh, two theories. One that says that putting dots on top of the letters was a way of emphasizing it. And so saying, he kissed him, it's kind of like bolding the word. He, he really kissed him. Or that there's doubt about whether the text is an accurate text or there's doubt about something here. And so... so uh, so we're not quite sure about this kiss. 
And that's why there are dots on top of the, uh, of the letters. So those are the two theories. So you can see that already in antiquity, people were wondering about this. So you look now at the second page here. So Rashi, as I said before, the most famous uh, Jew to write, uh, to write the most popular commentary on the Bible in the 11th century in northern France. He writes here, Vaishakeu has dots above it. In the Sifrei, which is a work we'll see in a second from around the third century, we find a dispute about how to interpret these dots. Some say that the dots mean that he did not kiss him wholeheartedly. However, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, it is a well-known halacha that Esau hates Jacob. Nevertheless, at that moment, he became merciful and he kissed him wholeheartedly. So Rashi quotes two opinions. One says, he kissed them, but he didn't really kiss them. Uh, shouldn't trust it. You know, he gave him a little peck, but he, he didn't mean it. And then Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, this is a rabbi who lived in the second century. It's been quoted in a work in the third century, and then being quoted here by Rashi in the 11th century, which and we saw it quoted by Rabbi Feinstein in the 20th century. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, it is a well-known halacha that Esau hates Jacob, but Actually, at that moment, he kissed him wholeheartedly. He actually loved him. And he gave him a kiss because it was his brother. Yes? I believe Rashi's interpretation of the kiss was he wanted to see if he had jewels in his Yes. Okay, so uh, there is... There, that's very good. There is a Midrash that says precisely what you, what you said, but that's not the one that's quoted by Rashi. That's quoted by other... that. that, uh, that He's kissing him because he was looking to see whether there, 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 yeah, so the, the, uh, there were various attempts. There was even a suggestion made in a Midrash that he tried to bite him on his neck and that his neck turned into marble and that Esau broke his teeth doing this. So, so, so there were all, all sorts of ways of reading it uh, as a uh, negative statement about Esau. But the funny thing is that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's statement that is being quoted here is actually the end of it says, at that moment he became merciful and he kissed him wholeheartedly. That's kind of a loving understanding of this scene here. And so you see Rashi correctly quoted from the Sifrei, at least as the way the Sifrei, the third century work, appears in the standard printed edition. You can... Uh, you can just, I'll, I'll read it. It's almost the same thing that Rashi said, Vayishakeu has thoughts about it, meaning that he did not kiss him wholeheartedly. However, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, it is a well-known halacha that Esau hates Jacob. Nevertheless, at that moment, he became merciful and he kissed them wholeheartedly. That's uh, text four. Okay, so there are three problems here with trying to learn a principle about anti-Semitism from this text. Problem number one is actually Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who said this statement, has the more liberal understanding of what's going on here. He, th he feels that there was actually a sincere rapprochement between the brothers. And you're absolutely right that there is this Midrashic tradition that says that there was nothing sincere about this, but that's not what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says here. He's actually saying that there was a real rapprochement, and, that, and he's saying that it's possible that there will be a rapprochement between Jacob and Esau. Problem number two. It's so hard to say that this text is talking about all Jews and all Gentiles. It's talking about a story about two brothers who had a fight. And one of them 
cheated or fooled the other one, and the other one was angry, and then they kissed each other. And then the question is, did they kiss each other sincerely, or didn't, did the sibling rivalry, did the sibling enmity disappear, or did it not? And so why in the world would one make the, statement, make the assumption that this is a statement about, uh, about all Jews and all Gentiles? Now, it is true that there are some texts in Judaism, in, in uh, rabbinic tradition, that use the words Esau and Jacob, as I said before, for, as code words. But here it's just a commentary on the biblical story. And there are two guys. One of them is named Esau, and one of them is named Jacob. So why is this being seen as a, as a statement about Jews and Gentiles in general? And then there's a third problem, which is that if you look at text 4a here, we see that in the most recent edition of the Sifre, this work from the third century, published in 2011 by a respected uh, scholar at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Menachem Kahana, he found that the text does not have that crucial word halacha in it in any of the manuscript tradition. He found 12 medieval manuscripts of the, uh, uh, of the Sifre, and one of the 12, the one that got to France, had the word halacha in it. But the other 11, and those of you who understood Hebrew, saw right away that that word halacha didn't seem to fit into this. And even Rabbi Feinstein says, what's this word halacha doing here? It must be to tell us that anti-Semitism will never change just like halacha never changes. But actually, the text is a, has a textual corruption here. The, 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 the real text reads, the halo biyadua, and I'll read it in the English translation, by Yishakehu has dots above it, meaning that he did not kiss him wholeheartedly. However, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, it, is it not well known that Esau hates Jacob? Nevertheless, at that moment, he became merciful and he kissed him wholeheartedly. So the, the, the proof that there is a statement in classical rabbinic literature that says that anti-Semitism is universal and inevitable seems to fall apart. Okay, so let's go back in history. That This is, as I said before, this is one of the two most common quotations to try to prove the, that, that Judaism teaches that anti-Semitism is, univer, is universal and inevitable. At the end of the lecture, I'll talk about the second one. But, but I think that I've kind of set aside this first, uh, this first proof. So let's go back before rabbinic literature. Let's go back to the Bible and consider what the Bible has to say about anti-Semitism. I would argue that there is only one biblical book that talks about the issue of anti-Semitism, and that is the book of Esther, which is perhaps the latest uh, biblical book. Uh, biblical authors are not interested in discussing an animus that Gentiles have towards, uh, towards Jews or towards Judaism except in the book of Esther. And in text number five here, uh, you see this, the classic patterns of anti-Semitism showing up in the book of Esther, uh, referring to Haman, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordechai alone, having been told who Mordechai's people were. Haman plotted to do away with all the Jews, Mordechai's people, throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. So the extrapolated, this classical kind of racism 
that you have a bad experience with one member of a, uh, of a minority group, and then you say they're all like that. So he said, Haman had a negative experience with Mordechai, and so he said, all the Jews are bad. And then he becomes genocidal in the, uh, in the next uh, section here at the bottom of page two, when he, go he goes to the king and he says to the king, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the other peoples in all the provinces of your realm whose laws are different from those of any other people and who do not obey the king's laws. And it is not in your majesty's interest to tolerate them. If it please your majesty, let an edict be drawn for their destruction. So because they are different, the way to treat them is by killing them. Now, sadly, we know that this is, was not the only time in Jewish history that somebody said something like this, but this is, this is the only time in the Bible that the Bible discusses this phenomenon of a non-Jew uh, plotting for the destruction of the Jewish people. Yes? But isn't there also in Shemot, when they are talking about the Israelites with the Egyptians, that they are basically saying we need to destroy them or they will destroy us? Right. They're very good. So the, the question, they asked me to repeat the questions because the microphone is attached to me and uh, I hand you the microphone, but I'll just, doesn't this happen also in the book of Exodus? Uh, are not the Egyptians trying to, uh, trying to destroy the Israelites? I would argue that the Egyptians are interested in enslaving the Israelites, and they're concerned about a military threat from the Israelites. But there's, it's really hard to call this anti-Semitism for a number of reasons. First of all, they aren't Jews yet. They're just a a group of people who don't have another religion, but they're just a group of people in that country who are serving as slaves, and the Egyptians don't want them there. Second of all, nowhere in the book of Exodus does it ever say that an, even one individual Jew died. If the purpose of the biblical author was to tell a story about... Uh, the Jews being, uh, be, being worked until they died, then the biblical author should have said that. The biblical author has another purpose for that story, and the story is not there to teach about anti-Semitism. It's to teach about God saving the people, that even when the situation looks bad, even when you're dealing with the uh, strongest empire that, uh, that existed uh, 3,000 years ago, the Egyptian empire, God is stronger than them, but it, it isn't. Destroy all the firstborn. Ah. Yes, 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 it says, uh, it, it, very good, it does say uh, to throw the children into, the male children who are born into the Nile, but it never says in the text that it happened. Now, it could be that it happened, but if the purpose of the text was to teach a lesson about anti-Semitism, then you'd expect the narrator to say something about it happening. But there isn't one sentence in the book of Exodus that talks about it happening. So it isn't a story. It isn't like a Holocaust narrative. It's a, it's a narrative about God. And if the biblical author had wished to 
teach us about, uh, about anti-Semitism, then the author should have, should have made it more clear. Um, the, in my reading of the text there, we see, a, uh, we see a strong, despotic, incompetent king who keeps trying various things, including saying that the Jewish uh, uh, baby boy should be put into the Nile, and then on the next page, there is a Jewish baby boy named Moses who's put into the Nile. And what happens? His own daughter comes along and saves the boy from the, the Nile. You're supposed to be laughing and not crying when you read that story. You're supposed to be saying, look at that incompetent king. And then in the next line, when the, uh, when the Pharaoh's daughter says, I'm going to pay Moses' mother money to nurse her own baby. She doesn't realize that, but we, the readers, know this. We're supposed to be, it's, it's, it's written in a form of a comedy and not in the form of a tragedy. It is not a text that is talking about anti-Semitism. You are right that there have been Jews over the years who have tried to interpret that text as a text about anti-Semitism. And towards the end, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about that, about how that, about how that happened. But I I would argue that that's not what the biblical author is trying to do. Okay, to get back to uh, the, uh, the story of Haman's anti-Semitism in the book of Esther, as I said, I think this is the only text in the Hebrew Bible that really does address frontally the issue of anti-Semitism, but the story of Purim, the story of Esther, and the story of Haman is never, is never understood in Jewish circles as an archetypal story. Haman is seen as being part of this people called Amalek. So there is this people that doesn't exist anymore called Amalek that are understood as being the mortal enemies of the Jews. But universalizing from uh, Amalek was never done in Jewish history. And everybody's saying that all the Gentiles are like, uh, are, are like uh, Amalek. Uh, the, the rabbis understood that Purim involved true hatred of the Jews, while Hanukkah involved anti-Judaism. In the liturgy, you see the difference between the way we talk about Hanukkah and the way that we talk about Purim. Hanukkah is seen as, be, as people being in opposition, the Greeks being uh, opposed to Jewish culture and to Jewish law, uh, and trying to uh, eradicate Jewish culture and Jewish law but not to eradicate the Jews, per se, while Purim is the story of an attempted genocide of the Jews. However, in the rabbinic tradition, the rabbis, the rabbis tried to understand what Haman's anti-Semitism was based on. Um, I'll just back up a step and say I, uh, I was asked to, uh, by this research group I told you, to look into the question of what people thought about anti-Semitism. The first problem that I had is that there are hardly any classical Jewish texts, like Talmudic texts, that talk about anti-Semitism. And I'm sure you all know that the Talmud is this giant 60-volume work that takes years to read through it, and you would think that Jews would be writing about the issue of anti-Semitism, and it's very difficult to find any discussion of the issue of anti-Semitism in, in, in the Talmud. And so we do have the Talmud's understanding here 
of what were Haman's arguments. What, so here's the Talmud explaining why Haman hated the Jews. Their laws are different from those of any other people. They won't eat from our food, they won't marry our women, and they won't allow their, uh, their women to marry us. They do not obey the king's law. They spend all their time shirking responsibilities and saying, today is Shabbat, or today is Passover. I can't come to work today because you know, they cut off. these Jews have all of these uh, excuses why they can't, uh, they can't come to work. They can't make a business deal. It is not in your majesty's interest to tolerate them. They eat and they drink and they revile the king. If a fly were to fall into the wine cup of any one of them, they would throw away the fly and drink the wine. But if your majesty were to touch the wine, cup of one of them, they would throw the wine on the ground and they would not drink it. Uh, th- th- this kind of concept is found a lot in, uh, is found often in the very few number of rabbinic texts, classical rabbinic texts that talk about anti-Semitism. There's a kind of un- understanding that it's really not all that surprising that there is anti-Semitism because Jewish law causes Jews to be so standoffish. They won't, they won't marry us, and they won't eat with us. So we don't like people who won't marry us and who won't eat with us. And you see this most strongly in a text here from somewhere between the 5th and the 7th century, text number 7 here. Rabbi Levi said, this can be compared to a king who was married to a woman. Very often in rabbinic literature, we have texts about a king being married to a woman. The king is God, and the woman is the Jewish people. He told her, don't lend anything to your neighbors, and don't borrow anything from them. In the Hebrew, it's female neighbors. So the wife is being told, don't have anything to do with the other women here in the neighborhood. The king says uh, to the wife, don't have anything to do with the other women here in the neighborhood. One time, the king became angry at her, and he threw her out of the palace. She went to all the neighbors, and they wouldn't let her in. She, later, after they were reconciled, said to him, to the king, it's your fault, since you told me not to lend to or borrow from my neighbors. I understand why nobody was nice to me when you kicked me out of here, because I, I, I never interacted with these people. I, st- I stayed aloof from all of these people. So also Israel said to the Blessed Holy One, they said to God, aren't you responsible for the dislike of the Jews? Really strong stuff. You, God, are responsible for the fact that sometimes people dislike the Jews. You told us, You shall not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Had we given our daughters to their sons or taken their daughters for our sons, then some of them would have seen their daughters among us or we would have seen our daughters among them. If we had intermarried with all these people, there wouldn't be any problem of anti-Semitism. The the rabbis are quoting the Jewish people as saying this to God, that the problem of anti-Semitism is a result of the standoffish nature of, 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 of Jewish law. Then would they not have taken me in in a friendly way? And this is the meaning of the verse in the book of Lamentations that says, all of my foes heard of my plight and they exulted, for it is your doing, God, you did it. It all comes down to you.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So those are, we'll get to those uh, texts at the bottom of page three, but I'd like to sum up to this point. The Bible and classical rabbinic literature clearly recognize that the phenomenon of anti-Semitism exists. They don't talk about it very much, and they never argue that it is universal or inevitable. They do not see Haman's genocidal plan as something common. The rabbis are much more interested in the phenomenon of gentle dislike, Gentile dislike of the Jewish religion, that they kind of focus on that, that, that why it is that a Gentile might not like the Jewish religion. In a surprising way, they highlight the connection of this animus to the particularistic aspects of Jewish law, saying that since Jewish law causes Jews to be standoffish, we shouldn't be surprised when Gentiles have a less than positive image of us. So that's my summary of what we find in the Bible and in the oldest rabbinic literature. After Talmudic times, around 1,200 years ago, a new approach began, the approach that is most famous because of its appearance in the text of the Passover Haggadah, which is text 8 on your handout. I'm sure it is known by almost everyone here in the room. For not just once did somebody try to destroy us, rather in every generation they try to destroy us, but the blessed Holy One saves us from them. The statement that we all say at the Seder every year, that it happens in every generation that they try to destroy us. This is the second most common text that is quoted to prove uh, that anti-Semitism is universal and inevitable. This text cannot be found before the 8th or the 9th century of the Common Era. In other words, for more than the first half of Jewish history, I can't find anybody offering this teaching that anti-Semitism is universal and inevitable. However, Beginning in the 8th or the 9th century of the Common Era, this becomes a common Jewish teaching. And once it began, it really took off. I've given you just one of many possible examples of this in text 9 of the handout. Another commentary on the Torah by Rabbi David Kimchi of the 12th and 13th century, southern France, uh, in his commentary on Genesis chapter 15, he says, God hinted to him, to Abram, to Abraham, that in every generation, Gentile nations will attempt to destroy us, but God saves us from their hands. This became such an important teaching that Rabbi David Kimchi felt that we should say that the founder of the Hebrew people the founder of the Israelites, Abraham, already was taught this lesson. So this is reading back this lesson that I can't find anybody writing before around the year 800 
reading it back into the beginning of, uh, of Judaism. But, but I would argue that good historical analysis would say that for the first 60% of Jewish history, nobody was offering this teaching. And for the last 1,200 years, it became a very popular teaching. Uh, I'm not sure precisely what changed 1,200 years ago that led to this change in Jewish teaching. Perhaps the situation of the Jews in the world became more precarious, and people started to feel more endangered because they were more endangered. That's possible. That's why they, they did this. Another, and perhaps related possibility, I'm just speculating here. I, I can't prove anything, but I, I, I know that I have found a change in Jewish teaching that took place around 1,200 years ago, and I've been trying to think through. You want to offer a suggestion? Please, go ahead. And I'm not the historian, but it seems to me that for half of our history, religion was local. So the Canaanites had their religion, the Phoenicians had theirs, the Midianites had theirs, we had ours, and there was no great crossover. There were, it, it was, religion was truly tribal within your own clan, within your own nation. <laughs> But about seven, eight hundred years ago, Christianity spread beyond borders, Islam spread beyond borders, and to me, I always look at, at this, the cross-nationalization of religion as being this, the impetus for anti-Semitism. Because now, it wasn't just my peoples, it was my peoples, your peoples, and your peoples who think this way, but you don't. I, I think that your explanation is an excellent explanation. And I, I, uh, in my notes here, I wrote it up a little differently than that. But I like, uh, I like the way that you, uh, you put it uh, also, because there, there was this understanding that different uh, ethnic groups or national groups would have different religions. But the creation of, a, uh, of a, an attempt to create a universal religion, which both Christianity and Islam, were attempts to create a universal religion, a Catholic religion, a religion that, 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 that would be spread over the entire world and that was the correct, uh, the correct religion for all people. And uh, that led to problems for the Jews. Uh, so, I'll, yes, please. Mm-hmm. When did Elijah sneak into the Haggadah? When, when did Elijah sneak in, in, into the, in, the Haggadah? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't investigated when it started. I think it, I think it, is, uh, I think it is pretty old. And it was the understanding that uh, Elijah is this hope. He's the one who, who is promising that the Messiah will be coming, that hope would be coming, and that now, the, the celebration of Passover originally was, of course, a celebration of freedom. But for, but for many years, Jews didn't have any freedom. And so it, it turned into a hope for future freedom. Uh, instead of saying uh, that, you know, the Jews who were living in difficult situations in medieval, uh, in medieval countries, whether they were Christian or Muslim, it, it, it was very difficult for them to say, oh, it's time to celebrate our freedom. It's, it's not so difficult for us to do it uh, in the United States or in, or in the state of Israel. So 
Elijah served that role because he was seen as the, the one who ushers in the, uh, the messianic era. Well, let, 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 go ahead. I don't know who would. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Is what? Uh-huh. And at the Feast of the New Moon, the Rephaim show up, uh-huh. and they kill people, including the king, and they create new gods. Uh-huh. So when you have Judaism, <laughs> you can't have that anymore, but you can't give up the festival. Right. So okay. Said, well, it wasn't that after it wasn't the Rephaim okay. came in. It was Elijah. Okay. And guess what happens when Elijah comes? Nothing. Okay, N- interesting theory. Let, let, let's uh, get back to, to this. I, I would argue that for the first half of the 3,000 years of Jewish history, Jews lived predominantly in polytheistic countries. And with all the problems that the Bible and later Judaism have with polytheism, polytheism comes with an advantage. It is generally tolerant, and it doesn't missionize. You know, if you're worshiping a dozen gods or 15 gods, and somebody else is worshiping another one, it doesn't bother you, bother you that much. And so you could say, as you put it, that each national group had its own god. But there, there, was, also, there was also a kind of understanding. You know, you'd meet somebody, and they'd tell you, you know, we have a god named Zeus, or we have a god named Kmosh, and they'd say, oh, that's really interesting. Let's hear about your god. And, and, and that, nobody saw this necessarily as, as a threat to their polytheistic system. And so if somebody else had a different religious system, uh, there wasn't any real, real reason to be upset about it. People worship many gods, and they usually had a pretty laid-back attitude to the fact that some minority group might worship a different god. But beginning around 1,200 or 1,300 years ago, almost every Jew in the world lived either in a Christian country or in a Muslim country. And the Christians and the Muslims, particularly back in the first millennium, were eagerly trying to convert the Jews. And from time to time, they used violence against Jews in order to encourage desertion of Judaism and adoption of the majority religion or the universal religion, as you put it. It is then not so surprising that the Jewish attitude changed and the Jews started to teach about the inevitability and universality of anti-Semitism because they were all living in places where people were trying to get them to stop being Jewish and were willing from time to time, not always, but from time to time to use violence against them in order to accomplish this goal. Now, in the 21st century, we have more than one model from the past that we can draw on. I would suggest that thinking Jews should ponder whether the classical Jewish approach to anti-Semitism, the one of the rabbis and the one of the Bible, is appropriate today, or the approach of the last 1,200 years that Rabbi Feinstein still championed in 1971, the assumption that even in those nations that behave well towards the Jews, their hatred of the Jews is actually strong. For those who cannot tell... (laughs) 
I assume most of you can tell, my own feeling for what it's worth, and please feel free to disagree with me, is that the older teacher teaching is the more appropriate one to be promulgating today. There are, of course, places in the world where people are uh, negatively, strongly negatively inclined towards the Jews, and often this is based on religious, uh, religious thinking, and of course we have to be very wary of those places, but there are other places in the world where there actually is a fair amount of tolerance for different for difference of society about, uh, uh, about religion. And this, this country was founded on the principle of tolerating uh, differences of, uh, of society uh, uh, about religion. So while we must continue to advocate for vi vigilance, I prefer a more cooperative, uh, uh, I prefer trying to pursue a more cooperative attitude between Jews and Gentiles. While some continue to see the threat of anti-Semitism as the primary way to promote Jewish identity, I prefer the approach of the Bible and of classical rabbinic literature, where the content of Judaism is at the center, and not that we've decided that we have to be Jewish because everybody is out to kill us and because of the prejudices of our enemy and because in every generation they stand up to kill us, but because Judaism has something positive to teach, and positive to contribute uh, to the world. And I'm happy to hear questions or comments. Yes. Thank you so much. Please. Okay, we have about a half hour uh, uh, for questions. So why don't, we, why don't we start here and go around, if that's OK. OK. Um, so uh, you make the distinction regarding the first 1,200 years that there may have been dislike of the Jewish religion as opposed to Jews. Why do you think that distinction is important? Uh, the, it was dislike of the Jewish religion and particularly of the aspects of the Jewish religion that caused Jews not to blend in with others. There, there seemed to be a feeling. The rabbis, you know, when the rabbis said this, they were actually quoting uh, maybe not quoting, but they were paraphrasing what various Greek and Latin uh, writers about the Jews were saying. The, 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 uh, I forget which ancient Greek writer once said that the Jews are the laziest people in the world because they, have, uh, they, take, off a, they, they take off a Sabbath every, every week. Who ever heard of having a day off uh, every week? And, and that's... As we all know, that's one of the most important Jewish contributions to the world is the concept of the weekend. But uh, it, it back, in the, uh, back in the ancient world, it wasn't that way. And so, so, so there were aspects of the Jewish re religion that the rabbis knew were rubbing uh, various non-Jews wrong. But that's, that doesn't mean that they're out there to kill us. Uh, it just means that in the same way that we aren't all that positively inclined to be spending more time with them, they don't want to be spending that much time, that much time with us. Rav Shmuley, do you want to choose the questions or should I? Uh, you can do it. Just to okay. Repeat the questions. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes, please. We'll go around. In, about was a book about Jewish intelligence 
and the fact that the book was not allowed to be uh, disseminated because it was determined and found out through research that the Jews were smarter than any other group in this country. And so they repressed the book, which suggests that many Gentiles uh, fear Jews because of their intelligence and their success in business. And it is out of fear and anger that people are hostile and anti-Semitic okay. on a general basis. Right. Um, I don't know what you all think about that, but right. that exists today. So to, to repeat the question, the uh, story is being told here about a study that proved that Jews are more uh, intelligent and that was repressed, and, the, and uh, the question is suggesting that this is out of uh, a strong animus towards, uh, towards the Jews. Personally, I would argue that anybody who tried to publish a book that says that, uh, here in the United States that argues that any, re any religious group is smarter than another religious group or that any ethnic group is inherently uh, smarter than any other ethnic group or that any uh, racial group is less intelligent or more intelligent is going to have that same problem. I, don't, I, don't, I, I see that uh, problem as uh, the, the basic assumption of... Uh, North American society, particularly of North American academia, that a given is that there could not be differences between groups uh, th that is based on ethnicity, that is based on religion, that is based on nationality, that is based on, on race. In, in the universities that I have spent time in, that's a theory that just can't get published, whether it's talking about Jews. Right, right. And I have seen examples of people who have research about other ethnic groups and who were pilloried for publishing uh, studies like this. And so I don't see it as a function of a specific animus about Jews. I see it as a function of uh, the assumption, the strong assumption of, uh, of academia that there can't be differences of this nature that are based on race, ethnicity, or religion. Yes? So what would your answer be to the people in England? So what would be, so... What would you tell them to do? Uh, so, what well, okay. right. 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 What would I have answered if they had turned to me in 1971 when I was uh, just a whippersnapper and asked me whether they should be suing the, uh, uh, suing the British government and the European Court of Human Rights? So a few years later, the, uh, I come from the province of Ontario. I come from Toronto uh, in the province of Ontario in Canada. And uh, in Ontario we've got this really strange situation that Catholic education is free. The government pays for Catholic education, and it doesn't pay for Jewish education. Pardon me? Or any, or any other religious education. doesn't pay for Muslim education. doesn't pay for Protestant 
Now, where did this come from? For those of you who are interested, the, the, when Canada was formed, it was bringing together of the province of Ontario and the province of Quebec, and they made a deal and they said that the minority groups in Ontario, uh, the, the Catholics, and the uh, minority groups in Quebec, the Protestants in Quebec, who were a minority group, they would have the same rights as the majority group, and, and this was interpreted always to mean that their education would be paid for. But the province of Ontario did not feel that it was necessary to uh, that it was necessary to pay uh, to, to pay for Jewish education while they pay for Catholic education. What did the Jewish the Jewish community of Toronto apparently did not turn to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein? <laughs> they sued the government of Ontario in the United Nations Court of Human Rights. And the United Nations Court of Human Rights ruled that the government of Ontario was guilty of discrimination against Jews. And as they say in Yiddish, this helped via Teuton Bankes. This meant absolutely nothing. <laughs> Decisions of the United Nations are ignored all the time. And did it lead to anti-Semitism in the province of Ontario, the fact that the Jews sued for their rights? And no, it did not lead to anti-Semitism in the province of Ontario. So if they had asked me, I would have said, go ahead and sue. I don't think that this is going to be leading to, uh, to anti-Semitism. And based on the experience that I had uh, in the province of Ontario, my father of blessed memory was this was one of the most important causes for him of trying to get funding for Jewish, uh, Jewish schools. For those of you who come from Manitoba, you know the situation is better in Manitoba than in, uh, than in Ontario. It's a, it's a shame. Almost all the Jews are in Ontario, and the, 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 there's so much Jewish education. But in Manitoba, you've got, you've got a, much better, uh, a, a much better situation than, uh, than, than in Ontario. This bothered my, my father uh, uh, no end. In trying, to, in trying to deal with this. And I think that my father, correctly, was not worried that all of the lobbying efforts that he was doing and that other people were doing uh, were going to lead to anti-Semitism. And I don't think that they led to anti-Semitism. They also did not lead to more money for the Jewish day schools, <laughs> but, but they did not lead. Yes, Rav Shmuley. Right. And that, and that runs throughout human history through modernity. This notion that men and women are fundamentally different, a black person and a white person are fundamentally different, a Jew at their essence is fundamentally different. Right? And so I think, you know, today, you know, if you say a black person is fundamentally different than a white person, like that's considered a racist idea, but only a few decades ago it wasn't. You know, so For sure. So post essentialism comes with post modernity. And so I have trouble understanding the idea that Jews couldn't primarily be seen as having a unique essence, and that, that if they merely gave up their beliefs, they actually would be a part of us. Right. So I guess that's, that's kind of the concern I want to raise today. Right. So uh, Roshmuli is asking about the uh, 
understanding that was the common pre-modern understanding of essentialism that says that there are differences between, uh, uh, between groups uh, and, and that a member of a specific race is different essentially from a member of another race and the same thing can be said about a religion. What I, I can't really see that being reflected in any of the texts that I have found from ancient Judaism that are talking about uh, about anti-Semitism and about hatred of Jews, and they, they are connecting it not to the essence of being a Jew, but they're connecting it to, to, to Jewish law. And, and they are suggesting, as, as you put it, that if the Jews simply gave up Jewish law, then there wouldn't be a problem. Now I'll give you a test case. Look, if a Jew converts to Islam or Christianity, are they full citizens? Are yes. They fully, they're yes. fully embraced. There's no, there's no Jewish essence left That's right. That's right. That's right. A, a Jew who converts to in many periods of history, a Jew who converted to Christianity was given great honor for the fact that uh, that uh, he or she saw the light and decided to become uh, to be, become part of it. Now we all know that the. The, the strongest counter-argument to this is, of course, the Shoah, where uh, in, in, in the Shoah, uh, Jews were killed uh, indiscriminately uh, without, any, uh, without any connection to whether they were observing Jewish law or not Jew, observing Jewish law, and, and Jews who, uh, who, who uh, had fully integrated into German society uh, and, and, and who had abandoned uh, Judaism uh, ended up getting, uh, getting killed uh, in, in the Shoah. So that, that essentialist kind of understanding in the middle of the 20th century in the, in the most uh, uh, extreme and shocking and uh, sui generis, just an incomparable uh, event the Shoah is, it could not be compared really to any of the other previous events of, of anti-Semitism in history. And, and the problem there was, because of the pseudoscience that was going on, part of the problem was the pseudoscience that was going on in the world in the 20s and the 30s when people really began to believe in this essentialism and teach about this, uh, this essentialism, about the essential nature, uh, nature of uh, that a Jew is in essence different from a Gentile. And you know, this can be seen some Jews bought into this and, and taught it, yes, and, and, and taught it as a Jewish value that we are essentially different from the non-Jews. And some non-Jews bought into this and said that the Jews are essentially different from us. And because of that, they have to be, uh, they have to be eliminated. But I don't find that in any of the, uh, I don't find that in, in, in biblical texts, and I don't find that in classical rabbinic texts that relate to the hatred of, uh, of Jews. It isn't described in, in that way. Is it possible that there were people in antiquity who had this essentialist uh, kind of uh, approach? It's possible. I can't, can't rule it out, but that wasn't what the rabbis were teaching. Uh, when they talked about anti-Semitism, that isn't what they were teaching when they, when, when they uh, addressed the problem of anti-Semitism. Yes? <laughs> um, um, given your characterization of what has occurred, a 
book Rabbi's Understanding of Anti-Semitism, which you can find out in the Rabbi. Is it time that we reconsider the council that I think originated at the time of Constantine and Diocletian that we turn away those who want to convert twice, that we shove them away from us, that we, uh, we set ourselves apart. So uh, I'm not sure that I understand what you're suggesting. What I'm saying is, your, as I understand your thesis, it is that the ancients objected to the standoffishness, as you put it, of the Jews, not to the fact they were Jews. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the Jews eventually um, said, uh, bought in to the other view that, well, you know, as Jews, we really don't want to have anything to do with these Gentiles. We've got to separate ourselves. And I think, I, I think that was due to the fact that people like Constantine and Diocletian gave them very strong incentives for that. Mm-hmm. So so your question is, is it time for Judaism to consider taking a, a new approach about, uh, about the, things of this nature? Well, I think it is, and I think that all of us who live in the United States of America or in Canada or in any of the countries of the Western world are taking a, a very different approach than our great-great-grandparents took back in Eastern Europe or wherever, wherever they were to... Uh, I, I was told that uh, I, uh, that uh, my grandfather used to spit whenever he walked past the past the church, and you know I, 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 I'm assuming that that's not the common behavior of of people who have gathered in in, in this room tonight. I, I think that all of us are uh, are, are definitely taking a different. Uh, a, a different approach to this. Uh, on the other hand, there still are aspects of uh, of Jewish law that do make it difficult to have a uh, a full kind of relationship. I, I had a colleague at my university, a, a Catholic colleague who I was very close with. We spent a lot of time together. I remember he sat me down one time and he said, "Marty, is there anything I can do?" to get you and your wife to come over for dinner at my house? Is there, is, is, is there, is, is there some way that we could do this? But, uh, and I said to him, I didn't really think so, Paul. I mean, that, but I said, you know, we can continue to be friends and we continue to, uh, to, to have our friendship not be connected with having, uh, having dinner together. It's not the only way of having... And, and Paul and I continue to be uh, close friends for, for, for many years. And I don't think that my great grandparents uh, were looking for ha- to be having uh, close relationships with, uh, uh, with Catholics like the kind of relationships that I, that, that, that I have had. So. Judaism has a lot of positive 
right. Right. Okay. I, I, uh, if I could paraphrase what you said, uh, I, I, about 25, 30 years ago, I read an essay by a uh, Jewish thinker who said that the problem with North American uh, Jewry is that uh, it, it's kind of the, uh, it's the seven up problem, that seven up actually had no identity at all. It used to call itself, those of you who are old enough will remember, it used to call itself the uncola. All, all it could say is that it wasn't a cola and that it didn't have any, uh, any identity on its own. And the problem with Judaism in, uh, in the United States and in Canada was that Jews were uh, understanding their Judaism in terms of we aren't Christians, we aren't really sure what we are, but we know one thing for sure, which is that we are not Christians. And uh, the author of this essay and I are not, are not big fans of 7-Up uh, of, uh, of Judaism. But uh, I, I think that Judaism does have something to teach uh, other than uh, the negation of the, uh, uh, of the message of, uh, uh, of Easter. Uh, this, yes, please. Uh, by the way, uh, Chabad helps you to think. Oh, yes, I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when somebody converts, I guess they would say that that person was a Jew all along. Oh, I've heard that. Yes. In any case, people uh, should be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also wanted to ask you a question. Do you think it is possible to be fully American or Canadian and fully Jewish? Part of Judaism is to discourage socialization with Gentiles. That is the reason that wine is forbidden. You shouldn't because of their daughters. The rabbis were correct in that. If we socialize with Gentiles, we're going to marry Gentiles. Right. And we see it happening all the time. so un-American to me. Right. To say to my Gentile neighbor, I will not socialize with you. Right. It's just... It, it bothers me to my core, yet I know that if you look at the Jewish world today, those Jews who are keeping to themselves and not mixing with Gentiles are growing, right. and everyone else is shrinking. Right. So what is the solution to that? Can you mm -hmm. be fully American or fully Jewish? Right. Pardon me? Yes. So uh, first of all, uh, uh, there was a comment here about essentialism, and uh, for sure, essentialism is being taught by Chabad and by many other people, too. But many other Jewish groups are, continue to teach essentialism. All that I was trying to say was that the rabbis were not connecting anti-Semitism anti to essentialism, and their understanding of the phenomenon of anti-Semitism, but for sure, there are uh, Jewish teachers that I don't particularly like, and that uh, that's not the message that I try to uh, to teach. Uh, the uh, I, I'm put off by the uh, by the essentialist uh, position. And the the you asked about uh, you mentioned about converts that somebody who con converted. Uh, so sometimes they say, well, actually they were originally Jewish and they've just come back to the fold. But in Way back in the 12th century, one of the leading Jewish thinkers of the 12th century, Rabbi Judah Halevi, uh, wrote that when somebody converts uh, to Judaism, uh, it's an improvement, but he or she does not reach the same level that we born Jews are at. That, you know, he, he also had 
Judah Halevi also had this strong essentialist uh, understanding of what it meant uh, uh, of what it meant to be uh, of what it meant to be Jewish. Okay, so that was the first part of your comment. The second part. <laughs> Yes, can you be completely American? I hope so. Uh, I, I tried to do it for uh, 64 years until I, in, until, I moved to, uh, until I moved to Israel. And you know, it, it used to surprise me a lot. You know, I'd walk around York University with a kippah on my head, and everybody knew who I was. And you know, they, and they like, elected me to be the faculty representative to the Board of Governors of the university. And you know, that, you know, even though I didn't go to their homes and eat with them, and I was not encouraging my daughters and my son to marry their, uh, their sons and, uh, and, and daughters, I, th I feel like I was successful in uh, Fitting in to the society in which uh, in which I lived, while observing Jewish law, is it is it easy? No, I don't think it's that easy. But I think I think that it's doable, and I don't think that anybody saw me as uh, not being a true Canadian uh, because I was living a, the same Paul that I quoted before, Professor Paul Swarty, wonderful guy. Uh, he once said to me. You know, in Canada, Thanksgiving is in October and not in November. And one time, Thanksgiving fell on Yom Kippur. And Paul came up to me and said, Marty, what are you going to do this year? It's Thanksgiving and it's Yom Kippur. And then he, I was quiet for a second. He said, that was a really stupid question, wasn't it, Marty? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to fast, right? I said, yes, Paul, I, I'm going to fast. <laughs> so... so so, you know, the question about whether, uh, about figuring out how to fit into the society, how to observe Thanksgiving where you're also observing Yom Kippur, we all have, hey, pardon, I, sh I should have invited him <laughs> over to my house <laughs> to eat dinner, to lunch on Yom Kippur, yes, yes, please. Right. <laughs> Take an egg. Yes. Yes. Read the, if you've ever read the biography of Rabbi uh, Schneerson, uh, 
says he was, why was he so respected by the presidents and the kings all over the world? Because he respected them. Right, respected, respected them. That's right. Um, so am I not correct in saying that anti-Semitism is pathological? That came out of, out of, the, out of the birth of, of Christianity. Um, and just one last comment I want to make. We always talk about anti-Semitism. Don't spend enough time talking about how to how to eliminate anti-Semitism. We should spend more time not on the problem, which we know exists, but on the, on the solution. And the best example of promoting uh, Jewish principles is the State of Israel, which is built on the Torah, on Jewish principles, and the, many of us remember 1948, where the whole world was against Israel. Mm -hmm. Israel, Israel was established by the skin of their teeth, and today they are the uh, they're friends with Saudi Arabia, they're friends with Iraq, they're friends with all the. Uh, so mm -hmm. promoting Judaism, uh, we, sh we shouldn't diminish our principles. We should, we should right. Strengthen them and explain to the world what our principles are. Right, I uh, I definitely agree with. Uh, uh, almost all of what you said there. The, 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 relation, the question of the relationship of uh, anti-Semitism and the rise of Christianity. There, there is some anti-Semitism in the, uh, the Greco-Roman world before the rise of Christianity, but you, you are right that after the rise of Christianity there is an increase. But I also think that we have to be uh, aware of changes that have gone on in Christian circles in uh, in recent years, the, uh, I, I can remember when I started my teaching career telling my students, uh, I used to teach about relations between Jews and Christians, and I told with my great prophetic abilities, I explained to my students how Catholic theology is such that the Vatican will never uh, be able to recognize the state of Israel and the Pope will never go and visit the, the state of Israel. And I, I was just wrong. Because Catholicism changed, and there has to be a recognition. Uh, Jews have to realize that the, that the, the last few popes have taken some very strong steps towards establishing a better relationship between, uh, between Jews and Catholics. Different Protestant denominations. Some Protestant denominations are the biggest friends of the state of Israel. Some Protestant denominations are still uh, very negatively inclined towards, uh, towards Judaism. So I, I, I would agree with you historically that uh, anti-Semitism got a very strong boost from, uh, from Christianity, but that doesn't mean that it uh, will inevitably be part of the relationship between Jews and Christians in a country, in a great country like this. Please join me in thanking Professor Rothschild. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. 
please consider going to www.valleybeitmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.